slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Law Matters is paid for by Law Matters Nonprofit Organization. Opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not necessarily those of KVOI or its sponsors. National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters gives law enforcement a voice to hear their up-to-date concerns so we can keep our families safe. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. Please remember to thank a cop. Now let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We had yesterday, we had another car chase through Cochise County with illegals being smuggled in and has caused a deputy some serious injuries. He is looking forward to multiple surgeries and we're asking all of you to keep him his family, and his work family in your prayers. Our guest this morning is former U.S. Attorney McGregor Scott, and we're going to talk about the Constitution because I'm confused. Good morning, sir. How are you? Great to be with you this morning, and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, hi. Good morning. I'm glad you're with us, and and we have a lot to talk about, and we only have an hour. (laughs) We do. There's a lot going on, as they say. Um, Let's talk about this impeachment thing and the pardons and running for office and how does the constitution apply when somebody's been impeached how how come they're allowed to run again for so yeah go ahead yeah yeah so um at the federal level uh impeachment is a process which is set out defined and expanded upon in the constitution itself And sometimes there's some confusion around the word impeachment. And the process is set out uh, in the Constitution calls for the House of Representatives to vote to impeach. So that's the actual impeachment. Then, if that happens, the Senate conducts what is called in the Constitution a trial. And that's where the vote is taken by the Senate to actually remove the office holder from office. And I try to uh, analogize to it's analogous to a federal prosecution. Mm -hmm. And the way the process works is that the House Judiciary Committee serves, in essence, as the prosecutor. The district attorney or the United States attorney looks at evidence, holds hearings, compiles evidence that the accused has committed what is called for in the Constitution, high crimes or misdemeanors. And then uh, the House Judiciary Committee will vote what are called the Articles of Impeachment. And so, um, you know, for example, in the in the Richard Nixon situation in Watergate, the House Judiciary Committee had voted Articles of Impeachment around obstruction of justice. That uh, uh, so then if that happens, if the committee votes that it then goes to the House for a vote of the entire membership of the House of Representatives and a simple majority can then formally impeach the office holder. I analogize the House in that setting to a grand jury. It's only an accusation. It's not a conviction. Okay. So with, with the concept that the grand jury, the House votes 
It's a simple majority because that's what the grand jury has to do. If you have 35 members of the grand jury, 18 have to vote to return an indictment. So then if that happens, it transfers over to the Senate where the trial is held. And under the Constitution, uh, the chief justice presides as the trial judge in that setting. And typically what has happened with um, the Clinton, with the, with the Andrew Johnson impeachment, with the Clinton impeachments, the Trump impeachments, members of the House serve in essence as, quote, prosecutors in the trial before the Senate. Now, because, it, because this is the actual trial jury, the Senate, it requires a two-thirds vote to, to return, in essence, a verdict of guilty, and the office holder is removed. So sometimes I hear people talking about, oh, well, they impeached the president. Well, meaning it, it removed how it works. Impeachment is the accusation, and then the trial is the actual removal from office. Okay. So actually, that clears it up. For me, anyway. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's how the process works. Um, it is a, it is a, 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 you know, we've only had uh, uh, until President Trump, well, frankly, until Bill Clinton, the only time there had been a formal impeachment returned in the history of the United States was against Andrew Johnson in 1868. And he was acquitted by the Senate by one vote by the Senate in the trial. Uh, it, it's it's a commonly held misperception that Richard Nixon was impeached. No, he he was not. Yeah, the House Judiciary Committee voted the articles of impeachment, but before the House actually voted, the Republican leadership, uh, including John Rhodes from your state, who was the House minor, uh, Minority Leader, uh, Barry Goldwater from your state, Hugh Scott went to the White House and said, Mr. President, it's time to go. And he resigned before the House actually voted to impeach him. And as we know, Jerry Ford became president. Yeah, he was smart enough to to leave. <laughs> and the, well, the cards were stacked well, against and that's what, him. You know, I, well, I have to say that you know I give a lot of credit to the to the to that senior leadership of the Republican Party who went to their own president and yeah. said it's time to go. Yeah. And you know, and to quote the Hamilton play, "You don't have the votes, Mr. President." Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, it was time to go. And, and I contrast that. And I don't mean to make this a partisan thing, but I contrast it to the rally that was held by the Democratic leadership with Bill Clinton on the, in the Rose Garden after he was impeached. That, you know, it, 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 this is supposed to be a, a process where we look out for the good of the country and not just our own party. And I think the Watergate scenario with the senior leadership of the Republican Party, that's what they did. And the Democratic leadership resoundingly did not in the Bill Clinton situation. Okay, how do you feel about what's going on now with the Trump situation? I have to tell you, I have, I have um, Oral Valley PIO Darren Wright in the studio with me. So if you hear another voice going, "Hey, what?" <laughs> Darren's here, and and we're Great. we're both listening to what you have to say. Let, before we Darren, get to, pleasure to meet you long distance. <laughs> before we get to that. Explain the difference between being expelled, because I heard this week people are trying to expel a few people out of out of their positions. What's the difference between being expelled by your party and, and you know, what we just heard about impeachment? So the, the senior. So I, I assume we're talking about committee leadership in the various houses. Is that have I got that right? Right. Right. Yeah. So. OK, so. The leadership of uh, both the House and the Senate decide ultimately who sits on what committees and who the chairs of those committees are. 
And so um, by way of example, I think last year, maybe even, well, it must have been earlier this year now that I think about it, uh, Speaker McCarthy removed Adam Schiff from the House Intelligence Committee because he viewed him as not being trustworthy and reliable based on how he conducted himself during the Trump administration. So at the end of the day, the, uh, the, the leadership can make those things. Oftentimes, there could be a vote of all the members in the Republican caucus to say, we don't want this person on that committee anymore because they've embarrassed us. And, and so that is a process that could take place. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's uh, being expelled from a committee. I think they wanted him. What's that kid's name, Santos? What about him? Shouldn't he be oh. expelled? <laughs> okay, okay, I wasn't quite following you there. I, I get it. So expelled is an actual member of the House. Um, that, that actually requires uh, an impeachment to remove an elected official. Okay. And and um, the, the House Speaker does not have the unilateral authority to just say, oh, you're no longer a member of the House. Uh, now, they can limit committees he sits on. They can give him, you know, the closet up on the up in the corner of the 10th floor of the Rayburn building. <laughs> um, and, and, they, and they can limit his staff, but they cannot say you're, you're no longer a member of the House because that's a, a decision by the people who have elected it. Okay. All right, that's they're using all this language. I mean, it's just a hot mess in DC. So <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. So let's there's no talk, question about that. Let's talk about the situation with Trump and some of these um these charges that are placed against him. Indictments. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. You know, I was talking with somebody yesterday. I said, you know, I can commit a felony and have my voting rights taken away, but I can still run for president. What's up with yep. that? Yeah. So again, Sherry, let's go back to the Constitution, and, and, and I'm going to take this sort of in reverse order. Okay. Um, this In our system, the states decide who can vote, not the federal government. Now, there's some bare minimums. The feds have passed a constitutional amendment saying 18-year-olds can vote, so the state cannot prohibit an 18-year-old from voting. But states can't place limitations. And so when we, when we talk historically about a convicted felon cannot vote, they lose their voting rights, that's a, ma- that's a matter of state law, not federal law. The position, as we all know, the, the position of President of the United States is a federal office established by the federal Constitution. So the definition of who can hold that position is in the U.S. Constitution. It's not a question for the states, as it would be whether a felon can hold office or not or vote. Now, in, in, our, uh, in our system, um, and I'm, I'm going right to the Constitution itself. I was looking at this just yesterday. Let me see. There are very, very limited requirements to serve as the President of the United States. And I'm just going to quote from the Constitution, Article 2. No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of President. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained the age of 35 and been 14 years a resident within the United States. So that's it. You have to no be psych evaluation or anything. No, zero, <laughs> zero. Uh, and and so those are the only requirements. You don't have to have served in the military. You don't you don't have to have a you know a crime free record. That's it. That's what the Constitution sets out. 
And so, um, you know, I can understand how is it that I could be prohibited from voting if I'm a convicted felon, but I can serve as president of the United States. Um, it's a fair question, but the answer lies in the Constitution. Do you foresee so we say, any then, then future we, amendments <laughs> being made? There, there very well could be, but that's a that's a difficult process. I mean, yeah. that's not a simple thing to do. Um, and and you know, my wife and I have had this conversation. Made how could how could the forefathers have not? How could that how could that be it? Right? Yeah. And and I think the simple answer is no one uh, in that setting envisioned a scenario in which a convicted felon could seriously be elected president of the United States. No one. Can you imagine George Washington even contemplating the thought that a convicted felon would be elected president? I can't. Uh, so, so that's, these are, you know, sort of unanticipated situations that we find ourselves in um, and, and just situations that no one ever envisioned could be taking place. Well, Darren just had uh, an interesting thought. Go ahead. Well, I think uh, part part of it was because when they wrote that, they didn't want the reference to criminals because they some of them were considered criminals for treason and stuff for for rebelling and re, uh, revolting against England and stuff. So I think they were there may have been a concern there that uh, they that if they were considered criminals, they wouldn't be able to run for president because of what they had done to establish our country. You know, Darren, I, I had never thought of it that way. Uh, that's an interesting observation. I guess what I would say in response to that is that with the peace treaty uh, of Paris in 1783 establishing the United States, that was, you know, sort of, we talk about, you know, overcome by events. I think uh, the peace treaty and the establishment of a separate nation would have overcome that. But, you know, make no bones about it. Um, you know, there's. A, I don't know if you all have watched that. Uh, there's a. There's an HBO John Adams series based on David McCullough's book, and there's this fantastic scene where they they're in the Continental Congress in 1776 and they actually vote for independence, and then they all just sort of stop and go, "What did we just do?" Right? You know? <laughs> and fully, fully realizing that if the, if the king ever gets his hands on him, he's going to hang them all. Right. <laughs> and and so that's that's the deal. Uh, but it's an interesting point uh, that you make. It's it's incredible when you think back through our history, and we're really a young country. But I don't think yes. any of our forefathers anticipated a Donald Trump, you know, coming into office no, and doing no. the things that he's done. And no, that's right. And and the 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 um, the the concept of a of a uh, charismatic um, authoritarian leader. Uh, is something that they did everything they could to prevent from happening. That's why we have this massive separation of powers, the checks and balances, so that no one person, in those days, no one man, we would never have a Napoleon, we would never have a Mussolini um, in our country because of the checks and balances and the separation of powers that were created. At the same time, uh, you know, a part of that is to go back to the impeachment thing that we just talked about. That's why that's such a deliberative process. You basically have to have, a, in essence, a prosecutor say, we think there's enough evidence. Then you have to have a grand jury vote an indictment. And then you have to have the Senate, by a vote of two-thirds, 67 out of 100, have to vote to remove before it happens. And that's, that's a high standard, uh, certainly when you're talking about partisan politics. And um, so it, that's that's what they set out to do was diffuse power so that we would never have uh, a situation 
like a Napoleon uh, or a Mussolini. Or a Trump. <laughs> or, well, you said it, Sherry, not me. <laughs> okay. What do you think, how many, what is it, 91 charges? What do you think is going to stick, and what do you think is just wishy-washy as far as what's happening with yeah. them? Yeah, yeah. So, so four separate cases, as we all know, one brought by the Manhattan DA, one brought by the Fulton County, Georgia DA, and two brought by the special prosecutor, Jack Smith. So let me talk about the state charges first. Um, the, in my opinion, the Manhattan case is nonsense. It's just absolutely ludicrous. The guy ran as a candidate saying he was going to get Trump. And so you just have to undermine any credibility around that. The legal aspect of that, as an old prosecutor that I find just completely ridiculous, is that under, under New York state law, which, the, which is what the DA has the authority to enforce, it's a misdemeanor to have done what he alleges that Trump did. The only way he makes it a felony, which is what he has done, is to allege that there was a conspiracy to violate federal law. So the, the conspiracy can be a felony under New York state law. But I, you know, I've been around this business the better part over three decades now. I have never heard of the concept that the local DA has jurisdiction to enforce an alleged conspiracy to violate federal law. That just that's just not the real world. So I think the Manhattan thing goes away. Uh, it's all grandstanding and it's nonsense by the DA there. The Atlanta case by the Fulton County DA there. Uh, I, I think I, I think it's it's going to be vital for uh, them to get that case out of Fulton County on a change of venue because there's going to be an inherent bias against Trump in that county. Uh, and but if they're successful in doing that, uh, and, and I think they're going to have a good chance of defeating those charges because it's just again it's it's gray. It's not black and white. Prosecutors want cases that are black and white. They don't want cases that are gray unless the cases are brought purely for political grandstanding, which, in my opinion, is what the Atlanta County, the Fulton County DA has done in this setting. There's, it's, is it politics? Is it not politics? Is it First Amendment? Is it not First Amendment? There's just too much gray in there for that to be a stand-up legitimate prosecution. So at the end of the day, I do think that one goes away. Um, now, turning to the two federal indictments brought by Mr. Smith, I'm going to I'm going to make the same general comments about the I'll call it the January 6th indictment. Um, is it is it a crime? I don't know. Is it politics? I mean, what uh, you know, all those kinds. I just don't know. There's too much gray in there uh, for that one to hold up for me. Now, that all having been said, having been a prosecutor for well over 20 years, um, the, 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 the Florida document case is what I'll call it, the Miralago case. To me, that's a righteous prosecution. I don't see any legitimate defense to that. And I think Mr. Trump, at the end of the day, gets convicted of that because he did what they say he did. He, he, he kept classified documents. He did not, even if he, you know, if there's some argument that he could do that as a former president, if you accept what you read in the public dialogue, he shared and showed, you know, key classified documents to reporters. Uh, and, and then, as I understand it, he was sort of politely asked many times by the National Archives to return the documents and didn't do it. And then he, you know, he, he told his lawyer that there were no more documents, knowing full well that there were. 
and the lawyer signed a declaration under penalty of perjury saying there are no more documents at his instruction. So, so he has clearly obstructed justice. He has clearly withheld classified documents, and I don't know what the defense is for him in that situation. So of the four, that's the one that I think is the strongest case from the prosecution perspective. So do you think if he's found guilty, which, you know, a lot of people think he's guilty of a lot of things, do you think he'll end up in jail? Prison. He'll go to prison if he's, he will go to prison if he's convicted on the documents case. Would it be Supermax? <laughs> would it be in there with El Chapo? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It would be one of the, what we call the club feds, the, the lowest security uh, federal prisons of which there are several in this country. Do his Secret Service uh, agents have to serve with him? (laughs) Now that, I must admit, is a question I had not contemplated. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. They would probably turn him over to the security of the uh, the Bureau of Prisons, which runs the prison, and say, here, he's yours, and then then walk away. Your your new security team. (laughs) Yeah, here's your new security team, Mr. President. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I know he's he's got a problem with this gag order and you know thinking back as as a paralegal I'm like okay gag orders are issued all the time if you've got an active case it's no big deal and people don't consider that taking away your first amendment rights. How do you feel I think let him talk. I mean he's just hanging himself let him talk. What are your feelings? Well he he is hanging himself uh, every time he opens his mouth on this stuff. However, the the judge has a duty to ensure uh, that the sanctity of the process is maintained. Right, and it's not the norm. It's not the normal situation where you have a criminal defendant out, you know, on uh, on the national news every night and talking and, and this kind of stuff about a pending indictment. So again, it's not the normal, and and I I, I think. I think, in my opinion, I think it's a good idea that the judge did this because at the end of the day, there has to be a respect uh, for the process and and to give, you know, because the, the prosecutor can't talk. The prosecutor can't go out beyond what they've already said and start talking about, you know, we have this specific piece of evidence. We've got that specific piece of evidence. They're prohibited by the ethics rules from doing that. So it, it, it gives him, if there is no gag order, it gives him carte blanche to go out and say whatever he wants without contradiction from the other side. And in theory, you extrapolate that out to that's going to impact a potential jury that would sit and hear the evidence. So that's the, I think the judge's obligation is to make sure, as I said, that the sanctity of the process is maintained. Is it right for him to be, he calls everybody names. He's that's just his personality. (laughs) Yeah, but to yeah. threaten the judge, to threaten the the prosecutor, to threaten the jury, to make all completely these completely wrong, completely it, wrong, should never do that. Why don't should they just do. revoke his bail, lock him yeah. up, and use duct tape? Well, I think if you if you know if you tell him if if there's a gag order issued and he's directed by the judge not to do or say certain things, and then he does them, he's in contempt of court. And I don't know why he should be treated any differently from any other criminal defendant who may be found to be in contempt of court. And the remedy, as you know, Sherry, is you put them in jail yeah, um, for some limited amount of time to get their attention. And, and maybe there's an admonishment or a warning. And then if it happens again, okay, Mr. Bailiff, take them away. <laughs> and uh, that's just how it works. 
Okay, we're going to, if if you're okay with this, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a few. Nomatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to lawmatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. Law Matters Live Show works hard at keeping you informed on current issues from all law enforcement agencies, including any changes in both the tax and mortgage loan rules. I host the show as a volunteer. My real job is working for a mortgage broker with over 20 resources in residential, commercial, jumbo, as well as a reverse mortgage company whose new rule is offering tax-free money to those 55 and older, qualifying for up to $4 million. If you want to learn more, call me after the show at 520-310-9900. Law Matters is hosting their second annual Nominate Your Favorite Veteran for a Day of Recognition contest. In 150 words or less, tell us your veteran story and send it to info at lawmatters1030.org by September 30th. Our winner will be contacted October 10th. Be an honored guest at the Veterans Parade, receive a gift basket, and be interviewed on the Law Matters radio show. We look forward to hearing your story. This is JL reminding you the City of Tucson election is vote by mail only. Ballots will be mailed October 11. Please look for your ballot, fill it out, and drop it in the mail by October 31st. In-person ballot drop-off locations are listed on the county recorder's website. Let your voice be heard. Vote for a cleaner, safer Tucson. LawMatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to LawMatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today are former U.S. Attorney McGregor Scott. And in studio, I have Darren Wright here, and we are talking about the Constitution, about felonies, about Trump, and Nixon, and Clinton, and let's talk about Biden. Okay, you're talking about these these classified documents. Pence had them, Biden had them, Trump had a whole bunch of them. If what happens to... Trump with the classified documents. Is that going to happen to Biden and Pence as well? Well, it's resoundingly not going to happen to Pence because there's already been an announcement by the Department of Justice. They're not taking any further action. And I think I think the same is true of Biden as well. Um, So so the answer, the short answer is no. So then you say, why? Um, And uh, as I understand it, in in the Pence situation, they found I want to say one document that one staff member had inadvertently put in a file. And so what you have to have, uh, and this will, when I get to Biden in a second, we'll parse this a little bit more, but you have to have intent. There has to be a criminal intent. And in the Pence situation, there was none, certainly on his part, because somebody had inadvertently put a, a document in a file that went to Indianapolis or wherever it went. So, so that's the answer on Pence. On Biden, it's a little trickier because it's a lot more documents in multiple locations, and he uh, was not doing anything that I could see to really safeguard the documents. He didn't have in a safe somewhere 
So I, you know, the infamous box next to the Corvette or whatever it was in, in the garage, yeah. In the yeah, and um, but again, I, it, it comes down to I think how Trump chose to handle it. My understanding is, and again, all I know is what I read in the press. I don't have any inside baseball on this. When all of this was brought to Biden's attention, they turned it, the documents right back over. They, they turned them back in. Contrast that with, as I understand it, there were repeated requests of Trump to return the documents, and he just ignored them over and over and over again. And so, it, um, you know, what do you do? You have to take some action to get the stuff back. So then they go and serve the search warrant. I can assure you that I think the last thing Merrick Garland ever wanted to do was authorize a search warrant of the residents of the former president of the United States. But they didn't have any choice. And so that's what they did. And then Trump played games. I mean, all the stuff that's come out in the indictment, they're moving stuff around. He lied to his lawyer, you know, all the things. So at the end of the day, Trump really did not give them any choice, in my opinion. Uh, Again, only based on what I've read in public reporting, but it sounds like the, you know, the National Archives, everybody was doing their very best to just simply get these documents back from him, and he just played games with it. And at the end of the day, he's now criminally indicted. Okay, I understand that some documents were burned, others were flushed down the toilet. Would that be considered declassifying them? <laughs> just just a thought. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I think that would fall more in the category of obstruction of justice, destroying evidence. Destroying evidence, and apparently he wasn't the only one doing it. One of the witnesses said he actually wrote to-do lists on the back of these classified documents. I was like, you know, yeah. what is this yeah. man thinking? Uh, it just, yeah, yeah, no, it just doesn't work that way. And, and I, you know, I, I mean, let's speak candidly here. I mean, I think Donald Trump is a guy who's never played by anybody's rules other than his own. Um, and and yes, and very late in life came into this position where there's all kinds of rules around how you're supposed to conduct yourself, and and just chose not to not to follow the rules, and and now he finds he winds up where he is. Now you say the case in New York is probably going to go away, and I'm a loan officer, so I'm looking at this as mortgage fraud. You know, with with. The two billion plus, what was it? Increased his income well, or his wealth, wealth by two two point two billion. So Sherry, two so two different things, right? When I talked about the New York case, I referenced the indictment brought by the Manhattan DA about the hush money that was paid oh, to okay. the um, through Cohen. Uh, that's what I was talking about. Um, I was not talking about this case where there was just a very significant ruling earlier this week. Right by the judge in New York, um, saying it was all fraud. Is that what you're talking about? Right. Yeah. I, I to be honest with you, I have that one. I haven't followed as closely because it's a civil matter. I think brought by the state attorney general. I've really been focused on the four criminal cases, so I don't know a lot about the the one you're talking about now. Okay. Because I I'm sitting there going, I can't buy a realtor a cup of coffee without getting in trouble. You know, <laughs> this is like huge. This is a problem. Yeah. What do you think about um, our Clarence Thomas and a few other Supreme Court justices accepting all these lavish gifts and failing to report them on their taxes? Yeah, it, it, it does bother me a little bit. And, and I do think, 
you know, some of the justices, to include Alito, pushed back pretty hard on this idea that there should be, in essence, a code of ethics for the Supreme Court justices. <laughs> um, what we've done historically over the years is sort of just leave it up to them to make the right decision. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, everybody else in government service is bound by some code of ethics, right? And because I, 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 let me just tell you, as the United States attorney, I couldn't do anything. Um, nobody could buy me a cup of coffee, right? right. And, and, um, and I, I can't begin to tell you how many things I return to people and because that's just the way it is. Uh, so it does, it does concern. I, I understand that these are mature, sophisticated, hugely accomplished people and the argument, in essence, is, you know, trust us to, to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, I don't know why they should be exempted from the same standards that every other federal, uh, I'm not going to use the word employee because they're not employees, but you get the concept. Right. Paid by the federal government um, <clears throat> has to follow in this. And the, the concept of, uh, you know, it, 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 through your work as a paralegal, Sherry, you're familiar with the concept of a judge recusing themselves, right? I, right? I can't be fair, right? I'm a judge. My brother just got arrested for drunk driving. I can't hear this case because he's my brother, right? right. Exactly. So, so use a Clarence Thomas analogy. Uh, if he has friends who want to, you know, take him on a hunting trip or, or uh, he and his wife on a cruise or whatever, that in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that same friend then has a case that's pending before the Supreme Court, then then Justice Thomas should recuse himself because he can't be the, the person. And the important thing to mention here is it's not necessarily the reality of a conflict. It's the perception of a right. conflict. And how will people look at this? Is he really being fair and impartial as he rules on this specific case? So, uh, you know, as long as there's no business pending before the court, I don't have a real issue with the general concept of friends being able to take you out to dinner or, you know, take you on a hunting trip. I do think, though, that there should be, just as a matter of equity, uh, I don't know why the Supreme Court justices are exempt from what everybody else has to do. I don't either. And do you think there should be... Right. Exactly. Yeah. And especially on your taxes. The yeah. guy bought your mother a house yeah. or paid off her mortgage and paying, you know, a hundred thousands right. for that's income to you. That is right. income. Right. Right. So do you think there should be term limits? For the for who? So the the justices or Congress? All of them. The yes. Justices? Let's let's go all down that road. All, all of the above. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh uh you know, um, so I was a young man in California when um, term limits were passed in this state. And and at the time, it seemed like absolutely the right thing. But it's been a debacle in California because there's no institutional memory. The, 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 the one constant is the staff, not the elected members. Right. And the staff runs the place and because uh, the members come and go. And they're constantly juggling to get to a spot where they have more time on the clock and that they're not termed out. An assemblyman is constantly trying to become a senator. A senator is constantly trying to run for statewide office or for the House of Representatives because they don't have term limits. Uh, and, and so there's no stability. Everybody is constantly looking over their shoulder at what's the next office. And nothing gets done as a result of that. So I really kind of come to change my view on that. Um, instinctually, I'm not sure term limits is the right approach. I, I candidly, 
I wonder about an age limit and uh, what's just happened this week with the, the late, great Diane Feinstein. Yeah. Um, she you know, worked and, until and the day she, she died. She worked until the day she died at age 90. Yeah. And unfortunately, at least for the last year or so, she was doing that under the direct influence of her staff members who were telling her how to vote and what to do in a right. very public setting. And, and it should, it just shouldn't be that way. And, um, what we, what we have, I think, especially in the Congress, is this sense of entitlement. You know, I, I've been a congressman for 20 years, and I'm going to be a congressman until the day I die. Well, why? Um, when there's somebody younger or more able. And um, so, so I wonder about an age limit. Uh, Senator Feinstein, in all candor, bless her soul, I have great respect for her, uh, just was not an effective senator the last three, four years. She just wasn't. Yeah. Um, and everybody knew it very publicly. And so, uh, you know, this is the largest state in the union and we essentially had one Senator and then staff, uh, functioning for the other one. So, so it, it's something that needs to be given some thought on the Supreme court justices it, it, to a certain extent, it's the same way. And they have this power, uh, um, Peggy Noonan had a column in the, in the wall street journal a couple of Sundays ago about Biden and what she called the river of power. And once these people step into the river of power, they never want to leave it because of all the entitlements and the accoutrements and all the things that come with it. And so, but then as a result of that, they become completely detached from the real world and the people they're supposed to be serving. And that does not do any of us any good in the long run. True that. True that. Yeah. And when you think about it, some of your government agencies, like the FBI, you have to, when you reach a certain age, you have to retire. You have no choice. Yes. Same thing with U.S. Marshals. Yes. And I yes. I think they need to do the same thing with the presidency. If you're over a certain age, you know, you shouldn't be running for president. And it's scary. And people well, you know, he has all his faculties. He's fine. And who's his vice president? Because he's fine, but hello, <laughs> you know, anything can well, happen. That's exactly right. And, and you know, maybe one of the greatest examples of that in American history is Franklin Roosevelt when he ran for a fourth term in 1944. Yeah. Uh, he was a dying man, and everyone around him knew it. And, and there was no way in God's green earth he was going to survive that next term, and everybody knew it. But yet he ran. Now, thank God, uh, for whatever reason, they decided to get rid of Harry Wallace, who was the crazy uber liberal vice president, and put Harry Truman on the ticket with him. Because uh, the, the immediate post World War II world would have been a very different place if Harry Henry Wallace had become president, as opposed to Harry Truman. Um, but that's the reality of it. And you, I look at Biden every day and I say, this guy has absolutely no business running for another term. Zero. Neither of them and, do. And yet. We need new people. Well, that's, that's, that's a whole other topic we can get into here in a second if you want to. Because Kamala Harris and I went to law school together. So I've known her for over 30 years. Um, uh, but, but you know, the rea- and, and I think Nikki Haley is really onto something, that a vote for Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris to be the next president. And she needs to just, I was really surprised she didn't really hammer that at the debate the other night, because that's really one, to me, that's that's a huge argument. Okay, you, you know, you know uh, Ms. Harris, tell us about her. 
Give us the inside uh, scoop. She's an empty suit. She's an empty suit. There's nothing there. Um, she's not particularly bright, and she has. Uh, she's been the most tireless self promoter I've ever met in my life. Um, that she has no business being the vice president of the United States. And what has happened here is she grew up politically in a blue bubble. Uh, first elected position was as the district attorney of San Francisco, right? I mean, how hard is it to be a liberal in that setting? <laughs> and then she ran for attorney general and barely won. For, I mean, like barely won. It looked like the Republican who was the, the Los Angeles County district attorney had won on election night, and then she scraped by and somehow won. And and I'll tell you a funny story on that. So the LADA, after it looked like he had won, he called me and asked me to head up his transition committee to come in as attorney general. So I, I uh, Dan Lundgren had been our last previous Republican attorney general. So I got some of his guys. We had lunch one day, and we talked about how we're going to do this. So then, I don't know, a week goes by, and, and, and Harris is ahead, and she's going to win. So Harris uh, announces her, she does this huge public thing where she announces her transition committee. And the co-chairs of her transition committee were Warren Christopher, who'd been the Secretary of State in the Clinton administration, and George Schultz, who'd famously been the Secretary of State in the Reagan administration. And I just laughed. I thought, are you kidding me? You just got elected Attorney General of the state of California, and your trans- transition committee chairs are two former Secretaries of State. And... Um, uh, the columnist in the Sacramento Bee wrote a piece about had a great line. He said, I don't know what kind of attorney general she's going to be, but California's going to have the best foreign policy of any state in the union. <laughs> it's like, I'm just the, the audacity of it. Right. It just, uh, and, and so but to, to finish the thought, so she's in this blue bubble in San Francisco. She's in this ultra blue bubble in California where no one criticizes her. No one questions, no one evaluates, no one pushes back. And then she finds herself on a national stage where that's happening. And that's why you get all of these infamous, you know, word lettuce answers to things where she just talks in circles and can't put two sentences together because she's never been tested. No one's ever said, well, wait a minute, what'd you just say? And, and that's why she's so completely upside down in these public settings. So if you had your choice, who would you want to run on both tickets? Who would you want to run? Is I think we need to replace all the all the people on both tickets. Well, I have to say, um, and, and so so Chris Christie and I served together as U.S. attorneys in the Bush administration. And when Chris ran in '16, um, I was all in for him um, because I think, in a, in a in a way, his message was the same as Donald Trump's in that. You know, can, can I can I use a slightly four-letter word on your show? Is that okay? We'll bleep it out if it's no good. Go ahead. No. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate it. No more BS. Right? Oh, okay. That was kind of going to be Chris's thing. <laughs> Tell the truth, right? The truth. And that's why this time around his theme of the truth matters really resonates with me because it's like we now live in a world where the truth doesn't matter. And anybody can say anything about anything. And that's no, you can't run public policy that way. But Trump stole all the all the oxygen out of the room at 16 from Chris, and that's why he flamed out. So my heart is kind of with Chris just because he's a friend, and um, and he and his wife are dear friends of my wife and, and me. Um, but I don't think Chris has a chance, to be candid. Now, I will say in the last two debates, each debate, Nikki Haley has impressed me. 
she she's been kind of the adult in the room saying things that are directed at a general election, not just how far to the right can I get in the Republican primary. And she's come across well. Uh, so so I kind of I kind of like Nikki Haley right now, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know, you know, on the vice president, that that's just such a crapshoot. You never know where it winds up. Um, um, I do think I, I resoundingly think that we have the Republican. And I say this as a, as a registered Republican from the day I turned 18 years old. And I won't mention what year that was because it's a long time ago. Um, the uh, uh, Donald Trump, we have to move forward. We have to get past Donald Trump for the sake of the Republican Party. We just have to. And um, we have to move forward. Now, on the Democratic side, I, I, I'm not even going to venture a guess on that. Um, I will make this observation as a, as a person who lives in California. Gavin Newsom is, is everything but a declared candidate right now he is raising money he's doing he was down at the at the republican debate he was the official democrat for the counter offensive at the republican debate the other night he's going to debate desantis in november so there's no question he's just waiting for new for biden to say i'm not going to run and then the next day he announces there's no question in my mind about that and um why don't why doesn't somebody just challenge biden and run throw your hat well, it's, yeah. it's a great question, and, and, and I'll call them you know, the mainstream Democrats, like the governor of the biggest state in the union, they're not going to challenge a sitting president. They're just not going to do that. And, um, and you know, it just doesn't work. Uh, you know, Ted Kennedy took on Jimmy Carter, did not win. Ronald Reagan took on Jerry Ford, did not win. Um, you know, Pat Buchanan took on H.W. Bush, did not win. And so... It just doesn't work if the incumbent president wants to run absent, you know, some scandal, um, then that's just how it works. And Newsom fits sort of the historical mold, right? He's the governor of the biggest state in the union. He's just been resoundingly reelected. That's that's the historic model. Uh, You know, George W. Bush fit that model. You can go all the way back. Um, So so keep an eye on on Newsom, because there's no doubt in my mind he's running as soon as Biden says I'm not. Isn't Biden showing signs that he's already raising money and talking about running? So I think he's planning on it, isn't he? Well, I mean, outwardly, I think that's true. But gosh, I just I just can't believe he's seriously going to do this. Um, Okay, we all need to write letters and tell him, you know, hey, go enjoy your retirement. You got this beautiful home that that you hid all those documents in. Go drive your Corvette. (laughs) Um yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think the I, I I I was sort of puzzled why there just seemed to be this. He's going to run. He's going to run. And then I read something a couple of weeks ago that finally made sense to me, and that is that if he does not run, there's an all-out civil war in the Democratic Party for the nomination um, because Harris would run, Newsom would run, Pitzker would run, and there's just and then and then how far to the left do they get in that process? Because uh, that's who decides the nominee for the Democratic Party is the ultra left. So, so someone, and I don't know who that is, is you know Biden's got to run just to keep the peace within the party for the nominating process, and that resonated with me. That made some sense. As crazy it is to think that we would have a president who was eighty six years old at the end of his second term. Yeah. No. So I got a question for you: If Biden does run, does he keep Harris with him? Uh, he, he, he well. Uh, there's two answers to that question. Um, will he? 
Yes. Should he? No. Yeah. So, um, How do you feel uh, about Liz Cheney? Because, I mean, what's that? How do you feel about Liz Cheney? For Liz president? went off the deep end. You think so? Uh, uh, yeah, she could. Well, she could never get nominated. You have to remember, you got to get nominated. And and she she, I'm sympathetic to a lot of things that she said and did, but she went too far, in my opinion. And you know, she's persona non grata in the Republican Party. Okay, we have a caller who has a question for you, Rick. What's your question? Okay. Hi. So I can I can give you two questions, and you can answer either one because of the time limit, or I had a question about the FBI. If you want to answer that. Or I guess my other question would be um, regarding Biden. And do you see, you know, with all the with the money transfers and this history that if the Democrats say, hey, there's no proof here, but it's looking like there's probably going to be some proof coming. So I don't know if um, if which one you'd like to address. But the FBI, I've been following the uh, one of the guys that was on the, the Durham um, investigation just got pled guilty for getting 250 something thousand dollars from a Russian oligarch and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so I'll, I'll leave it to you. Okay. Um, okay. So I apologize, but I'm not sure exactly what the question is in that setting. So the, the, the question would be formed to the FBI. Should there be, uh, should the whole seventh floor get fired if an, with a new president <laughs> comes in, a new Republican president, I guess would be the one to do it. Um, it seems so. I follow closely. Uh, it seems like there's a, a, a slew of left-wing corruption in the in the uh, the old uh, J. Edgar Hoover building. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's a great question, and I know there's a lot of public discourse around this. And, and I'm going to say I'm a little bit biased because I spent years working with the FBI as U.S. Attorney. And I can tell you, um, you know, uh, the, the, the people that I worked with here in the Sacramento field office, without exception, just as ethical, straight arrows, let's get the job done. we got to put people in prison when they need to be put in prison. No issues there at all. The other thing I will say is that, um, you know, I, I know I got to know Bob Mueller. I, I, Jim Comey is a personal friend of mine. And Chris Ray is a friend of mine and was a partner uh, before he became FBI director at the law firm that I'm now with. So I know these guys. And and um, it, it all profoundly bothers me. And I, I read the Durham report and what happened. And I, I'm not exactly sure what happened, to be honest with you, with Comey and McCabe and all the things that were going on there. But you had you had Strzok. And um, the woman whose name I'm blanking on right now, the lawyer, right. um, uh, who who uh, just took it upon themselves with Annie, Annie McCabe's um, complicit blessing to do whatever they wanted to do. And and it's interesting because there was a guy at the FBI who was in charge of sort of the counterintelligence stuff, um, a guy by the name of uh, Bill Priestep. And I got to know him very, you know, very casually, but, but just really a very, uh, just had a lot of respect for him. And, and Strzok and the lawyer both reported to Priestep, who then reported to McCabe. And, and, and in the context of all of this, I kept saying to myself, where's Priestep in all this? How is he not caught up in this thing? Because you never saw his name anywhere in any of it. And then lo and behold, in the Durham report, 
uh, Strzok and the, and the lawyer were going bypassing him and going to McCabe. So Pre-Step was cut out of the chain because Pre-Step would have said, now, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Somebody explain this to me. And so, so it, 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 the circumvention of processes and procedures that took place in the context of that Russian, uh, you know, quote, collusion, whatever that means, um, uh, were just mind-boggling to me. I will say to you, Rick, that uh, Chris Ray takes a lot of flack, but that guy is, he's a, he is smart, he's capable, he's ethical, he's trying to do the very best he can to really fix a lot of the problems that are going on there. And, and I, should, should the next president fire everybody on the seventh floor? Uh, I think it's way too early to make that call, um, and we just have to wait and see who that next president is. I will say that, in hindsight, President Trump should have fired or asked for the resignation of Jim Comey shortly after he became president, because Jim, as much as he's a dear friend of mine and I love the guy, he made a fundamental error with that press conference on Hillary Clinton. He should have never done that. And, and that, that injected the FBI into the middle of the presidential election. And it was a, it was a fundamental error. And, um, and, and he should, so the point is Trump should have replaced him immediately rather than waiting until April, or I think it was April when he ultimately fired him. And, And that's the power that's, that's within the discretion of the president. The president has the authority to fire the FBI director, but it should be done only for the right and legitimate reasons, not just to make a change. Yeah, and he thought he could manipulate him, and he, he couldn't, so. Yes, and he could, he, there's no way Donald Trump was going to manipulate Jim Comey. That was not going to happen. Yeah. And Trump thought he could, which is why he kept him on for the for those months that he did. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. What do you think about uh, Kevin McCarthy and what's going on with him? You know, I almost feel sorry for the guy. I mean, he's in a position where he, he, he's a, he is, um, because the majority is so thin it's so small that he just just doesn't have any maneuver room and no discretion and and i thought what they put him through to get elected speaker on that however many ballots it was to come up with him as the speaker was just ludicrous he sold his soul to the devil well yeah um, but the problem was what was the alternative yeah. and you know this this guy from florida is it gets is that how he pronounces his name um, yeah, and, yeah. That guy. Oh my God! I just—it's like it's like they're not living in the real world. And um, and you know, I, I saw. So I, I feel sorry for McCarthy. I, I genuinely think he's trying to do the right thing. Um, and uh, but he's in a very difficult position because he just doesn't have the numbers. So. Well, I think the whole all of them should be replaced. Let's start from scratch. <laughs> start from the beginning well, we need to get through. back to the yeah we, we need to get back to what's right for the country exactly. what's right for the country not not what's right for me as a politician or what's right for my party or my or my piece of the party <laughs> yes yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. It's exactly right yeah so what are you going to do for the weekend you have big plans <laughs> i'm going to take my wife to breakfast there you go. And then, uh, yeah, we're uh, our, our youngest went off to college uh, about a month or so ago or more, and so we're empty nesters. So we're going to go to lunch or go to breakfast this morning. And then I'm actually going to go to a 
job fair for my law firm to see if we can find some young lawyers to hire. This awesome. You have a great week, and thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate you. And remember to keep our deputy in your prayers. Until next week, shop local and stay safe. <laughs>